welcome back to another episode of Northeastern Next, a showcase for the stories, talents, and thoughtful insights of our university's current and future alumni. I'm your host, Caitlin, a current DMR McKim graduate student. Today I am here with Mike Troxell. Mike Troxell is a 2010 Northeastern grad. He competed on the rowing team while in undergrad, concentrated in finance and accounting. Mike started a financial planning business in 2018, serving millennials and Gen X in the tech industry, and was named to Investopedia's top 100 financial advisors in 2022. Welcome, Mike. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. Yes, of course, of course. So let's jump into things today right off the bat. So you graduated college in 2010. Tell me about your experiences at Northeastern and early on in your postgrad career. Absolutely. So like you mentioned, I went to Northeastern and graduated in 2010. Uh, overall, had a great experience there. Uh, majored in finance and accounting, as you mentioned. Um, moved up from you know to Boston from Florida. So it was a bit of a you know, they're a little bit of a culture shock, but even more of a weather shock, as you could uh, imagine. I, I remember my vividly my first hike, I think it was up Mount Washington, and I had maybe tennis shoes and like a cheap windbreaker. And I, I was, it was miserable. It was a terrible experience. And, and that was, uh, it was a bit of a steep learning curve after a couple of winters in Boston, you start to get the hang of it. But outside of the classroom, my I did two co-ops. You know, uh, obviously, you can do two or three. Typically, in the business school, I did two. One in Boston at John Hancock, which is a great experience where I really learned how to tie a tie every day. And my second, which may, maybe we'll highlight a bit later, was uh, in New York City on Wall Street for Merrill Lynch uh, during the peak of the financial crisis. Uh, so that was during the the fall of, of 08. So uh, after graduating uh, in 2010, in the when the the financial industry was in shambles and the the 09 class was struggling getting finance jobs, my uh, our world was shocked a little bit. Our our plan was was derailed a bit. So uh, a number of grads were getting jobs at some large companies in these two-year rotational programs or development programs or leadership programs, different names for them. And uh, that sounded appealing to me, almost like a pseudo-paid MBA and taking the can down the road for two years. So I ended up uh, doing that at a larger company that does recruit out of Northeastern for the, my first couple of years out of college. Awesome. So I know you started out at that company, did that leadership rotation, and then eventually moved over to finance and then to wealth management. How did you make that change? Absolutely. So I've always had an interest in finance. I, I call myself like a lifelong personal finance geek and again, studying finance and accounting. So that was always the path. And the first couple of years out were a bit of a, you know, going off of the path. Uh, and quickly at that company, I realized I am really interested in this finance stuff. It was probably accelerated because I did graduate with a bit of student loans from Northeastern, maybe like a lot of folks. And so, I, you know, in my industry now, there's a lot of talk about financial literacy, which I totally understand. But but I, I do hold a little bit of a, of a rare opinion that sometimes student loans can be a great type of financial literacy. You know, you got to have the right amount, right? You don't want to have too much because you're just like on co-op, when you're making a little bit of money, you feel like you're a millionaire. 
Similarly, out of graduation, you start to get a couple of paychecks, you start to feel really rich. Uh, and then maybe at six months uh, post-graduation, those student loan payments start to hit and then you need to figure stuff out really fast. So it's more so the, you know, the, my interest, the industry I or I was going towards initially figuring out personal finance with my student loans. I wanted to look at every tax law, every financial loophole. I wanted to learn every single nook and cranny for myself because I wanted to get rid of these student loans. And so I was started seeking a job in the financial space, but it is it can be a tough industry to break into. There's a really high attrition rate. There's a lot of companies that will take on a lot of folks knowing that there's a high attrition rate. And, and, and it, it doesn't sound fun, but a lot of it is we're going to hire 10 people and we're going to tell them to get all of their friends and all of their family and everyone they've ever met as clients. And then nine out of 10 of them are going to basically drop out and go elsewhere and we're going to keep the clients. So there was a lot of firms do that. I was not interested in that. You know, you know, I was having conversations with one firm and it sounded great. And they said, okay, you know, no joke, write a list of a hundred people that you know, and you could, it's like, okay, no, you know, no good for me. I, I'm not interested in that. Um, so I'm like, you know what? I did study accounting too. And I like tax. So maybe I can break into this industry via the tax route. And so that's exactly what I did. I took a job at a CPA firm for a couple of years working on individuals for the most part, and then moved over to wealth management. In hindsight, it was a great move. I didn't maybe necessarily know it at the time. Now I see it where almost every financial move we make has a tax component to whether it's in different accounts we're investing in. Is it an IRA or a Roth IRA or a 401k? Or am I buying a ETF or a mutual fund? Or am I putting money in a college savings account or a health savings account? You know, almost every decision we make financially has a tax component. And now I realize that. And so now in hindsight, it's like, oh, well, that that was it's a lucky, but a, but a genius move. And I've had some folks call it that. And again, some of it was planned, but a little bit of it was accident accidental because like I mentioned, I did not feel like doing the traditional cold calling type thing, knocking on everyone's door, all my friends and family and, and asking them for money. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that earlier you mentioned you had a co-op at Merrill Lynch in the height of the financial crisis. And in an earlier conversation you and I had, you mentioned to me that the CEO made a real impression that stuck with you even today. I'm sure that was a very, very interesting time to be in New York, be on Wall Street with all that was going on. I'm wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about what the CEO said that stuck with you. Absolutely. No, I, I I just love co-ops. I think they're so valuable and it's amazing you can get paid for them too. But it was uh, at the fall of 2008. So the co-op started in July. And to give listeners context, Merrill Lynch at the time was, again, a very, very big name, historical Wall Street firm, right? Like the big names, you know, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs and whatnot. And so my co-op started in July. Fast forward a little bit, September 15th, Merrill Lynch was essentially uh, an inch away from being out of business and they were purchased by Bank of America. So rewinding them one month, right? So now we're going back in time. We're in August of 2008. There's a there's a big meeting internally and all hands you know, on deck type of meeting uh, where the CEO, John Thane, was speaking. And I believe most of the you know, higher ups and most of the full-time employees were, were just calling in or watching the video broadcast. Uh, it was live, right? He was speaking in, in person at the World Financial Center, which is right next to Ground Zero. And there were some full-time employees that went there, but a lot of co-ops went there. So we were literally you know, in, in the front row. And so at the time we were walking in, I remember everybody being uncertain, maybe a little bit somber, maybe confused, right? No one knows what's going on. The world around us is kind of collapsing. Bear Stearns, major firm, went under a few months prior. And then fast forward 15 minutes, 20 minutes, the meeting is over. 
And now everyone's walking out smiling, laughing, cheerful, giddy. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, this is, this is why this guy is in this role, right? This is why the CEO is in this role. I mean, there's thousands of employees at the company. What are the odds that he happens to be the number one highest IQ individual at this company? Maybe that's not the case, but he has this skill that a lot of CEOs have or their, you know, again, their leadership, their ability to rally the troops in a sense. And that's what I learned that that what sets CEOs apart from others. But then because Merrill Lynch went under, essentially, I realized that maybe that doesn't really mean much. Uh, and then now fast forward today, where most of my clients have sizable equity positions in their tech companies. And, you know, they're, again, they're working there, they're spending time there, they're, they're getting paid by them and they, they're invested in it emotionally and financially. And they're, you know, they're on a mission, right? They're, they're mission driven. Uh, a lot of times I hear, oh, I, I believe, I know the CEO, I believe in the CEO, I trust the CEO or the founder or this or that, uh, which I totally understand and, and, and admire and respect. But at the same time, we need to understand that those skills that they have, the, the you know, the psychological, the, the mission, the rallying the troops, the, the communication skills, the leadership skills, that's kind of par for the course. And they, if they didn't have that, they would not be in that role. Just because they have that, it doesn't mean the company is going to end up wonderfully, right? All of the companies that end up great, uh, they do have that CEO and all of the companies that fail usually they have that CEO as well. So it's, again, it's a skill that you need to have, or that's very, very common in those positions. And it's not, it doesn't really mean much. Uh, you know, and one, you know, one additional correlation, right? My, my previous life, I listened to hundreds of different investment pitches, very similar. They all had the best PowerPoints. They all were very well-spoken. They all were very compelling. They all went to the same amazing schools. They all made me want to empty my wallet and give them all my money. But the results were a bit different than that. So uh, I think it's, again, that experience with John Thane, it just sticks out in my mind in 2008. Uh, again, nothing against him or that skill or anything, right? We're all trying to develop that skill, but it, it is interesting that that is, uh, again, it's, it's what you need to be in that role. So I will never forget that. Yeah, that's a really good reminder for anyone out there about the importance of being a good communicator, being a good leader, and just, I think that experience alone really gets the knobs turning and has me thinking, what are the tools that you need to be a good leader and, and how to be successful at that? So thank you for sharing that story. It's very interesting as well that you quite literally had a front row seat to that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, minor fact check, maybe I was like six rows back or something, but I was in the room for sure. So pivoting to what you are doing now, tell me all about the business that you launched in 2018. Absolutely. So my uh, when I moved from tax over to the wealth management side of the business, I loved it. I knew I was in the right industry. I loved the people I was working with for sure. But you know, I grew up single parent household. My mom cleaned houses when I was younger, and I didn't. Uh, even though I rode, I don't. Uh, I don't spend too much time around yacht clubs per se. And so uh, the traditional firm uh, in my prior firm has very very high investment minimums. And given that that's who I was working with and I didn't really run in those circles. I loved those clients at the time, but I also had a desire to work with more of my peers, more uh, more of my peers age-wise and also career-wise where I could relate to them more. And also I wanted to solve some different problems. You know, helping somebody solve the problem about buying their seventh or their eighth house on Maui is maybe fun, but it doesn't really get me out of bed in the morning. Like I mentioned, mission-driven earlier. So I, um, I left that firm and, and at the time I wasn't sure if that was a good move or if that was the worst decision of my life, right? You know, walking away 
away from a, uh, a nice job with a healthy salary and benefits sometimes makes your um, makes your parents lose sleep, right? So I left the firm at 18, um, started my firm, Modern Financial Planning, and it's been great. It's been great ever since. You know, we do anything financial, or we we advise, we help, we partner with clients on anything financially with their lives. Uh, we don't sell any products, so uh, insurance can be a hot topic, and you know, we advise on it, right? We're not selling the commission products, but from we're advising on things from investing, taxes, tax filing, tax planning, insurance, but also a lot of other areas where it's, you know, family planning, salary negotiation, life or job transitions. We're in the trenches with our clients on this. We talk to them frequently. And given that we work with a ton of clients in the same area and the same niche, we're able to specialize and really understand the needs and, and the opportunities and the, and, the, and the pitfalls of these certain folks. If we, if we get clients that, that come in or prospective clients that come in and we do all the time that are way outside of our ballpark, even if they would be highly profitable, we refer them out elsewhere nine out of 10 times because you know, uh, one example would be Google, right? We've worked with so many Google employees that there's still stuff we need to learn for sure, but we know the stuff those employees are dealing with, you know, almost by by memory, and so it just uh, it just makes it a lot easier to serve, and it makes us uh, it allows us to add um, much more value to them as well because we're more familiar. Yeah, and I know that you've mentioned to me that you your target is really millennials, Gen X, specific to the tech industry. And I know that there's a lot in the news right now about the tech industry being hit hard by layoffs. How do you help your clients plan for those unexpected events? Oh, good question. Good question. And, and, and not to uh, correct you by any means, sometimes they, they seem unexpected, but in a sense, we do expect them. Like uh, I'll, give, I'll give an example. Uh, no one likes when the stock market goes down, right? But if we look historically, Historically, there is a, on average, a 14% drop every single year in the S&P 500. Again, historically, on average, every year we get one Thanksgiving, one Christmas, and one 14% drop. So in theory, it shouldn't be news per se, it shouldn't be a surprise, but it is still, it feels unexpected and a, a bit of a surprise to many. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, there's been a lot more layoffs in tech the last uh, six to nine months or so. And, and generally with our clients, they're, again, they're mid-career folks, they're high earners, they're doing very, very well. We're spending a little less time on maybe budgeting per se, and we're spending a little more time on trying to really bulletproof their situation. Where it's like, hey, you're already doing well. You're already saving good money. You're already making good money. How do we avoid disaster? And one of those things that we do is just making sure we have enough cash in the bank, having cash reserves. You know, the difference between having 20K in cash versus 40K in cash is not going to make a big difference in your 40-year retirement projection, but it might make a big difference in how well you sleep at night. And it might make a big difference in how well you react to getting, an, uh, like you said, unexpected layoff. It might buy you more time if you get laid off to, you know, take your time, debrief, network, you know, look, find out what the, the, the best next step for you is, right? Because so it could make a big difference in some of these uh, life transition moments. So generally one of our biases for sure is to just, again, try to bulletproof these client situations, try to make sure we have enough cash reserves in the bank uh, and try to plan for that. And knowing, hey, when this happens or if it happens, all good, we're totally prepared. It's okay. Yeah, that, that's a good reminder and a good lesson for anyone out there is anything could happen. So have a plan in place for it. Yep, absolutely. And there's certainly an investment case for it too. I, I believe Charlie Munger, which is a Warren Buffett's business partner, has a quote, the first rule of compounding interest is to never interrupt it unnecessarily. And so if we don't have cash reserves, 
and there's a layoff, then we're going to interrupt our compounding interest, right? We're going to maybe pull it from our investment account. And then maybe at the time we pull it from the investment account, maybe it goes up by 20%, right? So we're kind of in interrupting that magic or, or what some have described the eighth wonder of the world, the compounding interest. So there's definitely, you know, personal reasons to have the cash, uh, but there's financial and in investment reasons too. Compounding interest, eighth wonder of the world. I, I love that. Awesome. So Mike, because this is Northeastern Next, I would like to ask what is next for you and your business? Yep. Good question. And for, I don't know if anyone's ever read the E-Myth. Um, I think it stands for the Entrepreneur Myth. It's a relatively well-known book. I read that book and that I'm, I'm essentially trying to do some things that book talks about where it's moving your, your enterprise, your business from a practice into a business. And it, just to give, give an example of what that book talks about, uh, you maybe you're good at baking cakes, right? And then your friends would say, hey, you should open up a bakery. But you learn when you open up that bakery, you're doing a lot of other things that are not baking you're doing you know you're doing hiring you're doing training you're doing you know maybe doing cashiers you're 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 paying rent you're dealing with the the lights going out right there's a lot of businessy stuff and just because you're a baker doesn't mean you're you are good at running a bakery uh and i always thought of myself as a very good baker in this business where it's like you know the business stuff i could be better at for sure but i'm really really good at baking you know 2023 and as as we move beyond i finally reached a point where i'm like you know what i can run a good bakery and we're trying i'm trying to go through that phase right now of turning this into a, um, a better business per se and less of a Mike Troxel centered practice. Uh, you know, one of the things we are focusing on, on is trying to improve our marketing. We've had no problem getting clients over the last five years, but we've really lacked on the marketing side. And so I have a few things going on there. Relaunched a podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, it's called Tech Personal Finance. Also started a weekly newsletter called the Weekly Vest. Uh, so if anyone is interested in seeing either of those, the hub of what I do is uh, my personal website. It's miketroxel.com. And if anyone went there, they could see anything I'm doing, whether some writing I'm doing, it'll link to the podcast, it'll link to the newsletter, and it'll link to the business as well. So MikeTroxel.com, if someone wants to get in touch with you, your business, subscribe to your newsletter or access your podcast, right? Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mike, for joining today. I think this was such a good lesson in leadership, business, financial literacy. I really appreciate it. And I hope others will too. Alrighty, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me. listening to this episode of Northeastern Next. If this episode brought back some great memories, check out our Husky Starter page online to support current student endeavors or reach out to us via our email at alumni at northeastern.edu or on Instagram at northeastern underscore alumni to point us in the direction of a great story, either from you or a friend. And lastly, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can hear a new episode in your feed every other Wednesday. Remember, once a husky, always a husky. See you the week after next.